dear listener, and welcome to the third episode of the Metacast Crypto Corners. I'm your host, Nicola Vreke, or Nico for short, and today I'm joined by Joost van Drunen, Sebastian Park, and Antubel Moreda. Today we are having a discussion on how to get to the next 100 blockchain gamers. I mean, uh, we're on the Crypto Corner uh, episode today, so um, some of us are, are, are like very much in favor. Some of us might be more critical. We'll see later. Uh, but before we dive in, let's get to know each other a little bit. First panelist I'd like to introduce is a well-known games industry scholar, Joost van Drunen, also known as the Joostreiser. Um, and so when I decided to learn more about the business of games, the first book I decided to read about it was a book written by Joost. Um, so Joost, welcome. And for the crypto bros who are listening to this podcast, could you give us a short background about yourself? Sure. And th thanks for having me. I, uh, I'm a big fan of the of the podcast and the show and the work you guys do. Um, so I always welcome a, a, a broader conversation, which is, I guess, also sort of my take on things, right? I am... A, a recovering academic in that I, uh, I did Oof. a PhD. Um, I'm originally from the Netherlands. I escaped 20 years ago. Um, you know, the, the, the food and weather is just better in New York. Um, and part of trying to get to stay in New York was getting uh, signed up with some school program. So I did, I did a PhD in video games, which then also forced me to get some jobs as an analyst to pay for all that education, uh, which eventually led to a business model where um, in 2010, we started Superdata, um, which was really focused on this idea of, hey, nobody cares right now about digital distribution and free to play and virtual items and microtransactions, but that's gonna be big. No, it's not, yes, it is. And five years later, of course, it was totally obvious to everybody. So I. I tend to take sort of an academic approach to like, what are the big trends? What are the macro transitions that we're going through? And then try to build some business around it. Um, for me, crypto is, uh, is that as well. And, and we could talk about that in a second. Uh, the business super data, we sold it in 2018. I exited that whole circus in right before the pandemic shut down all the schools here in Brooklyn. And then since then I've been advising and investing and writing, I'm working on my second book for one. So, so it's been a, but I always welcome the dialogue and I uh, always like listening to what you guys have to say. So I'm excited to be here. That's awesome. And you also has a email that you send out weekly, bi-weekly. That's right. The Superheroes playlist. Yes. I highly recommend listening to it uh, or uh, subscribing to it. Um, Thanks. One more remark. So you said that you uh, started Superdata when you saw an opportunity where the data collection was not, like, not yet fully established, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do you see a similar opportunity now? Oh, of course. So the, um, you know, you can tell by the fact that, um, I mean, there's all these earmarks or these sort of uh, indicators, but so usually massive technological change happens faster than like people can wrap their heads around. So one of the major themes in my research is always sort of uh, is mental inertia, right? What makes it so that when free-to-play came out, everybody on the legacy sides was dragging their feet and consequently totally missed out, right? So you see that certainly Take-Two, EA, and Activision did really well over the last five to 10 years, but not nearly as well as Tencent and NCSoft and everybody. It's like the, the digital native companies totally crushed them, right? Is that, that number of, like, what is it, $200 billion of consumer spending on games, most of that went to newcomers because the the legacy firms they totally missed that opportunity. You see the same thing now, so that's one, right? And I find it interesting to kind of then 
find these pockets where there is a, a, an absence of knowledge, there's a vacuum. Like how, so, so mm-hmm. I kind of take it as my role. Like I've, I'm just curious and try to understand. And then I, I guess I make a living explaining it back to other people. Uh, and data sits at the center of that always. Yeah, I agree. Cool. All right. Um, next up, we have Sebastian Park. Seb and I, we know each other from a panel we did in September. And it then became clear to me that he's very good at talking il- intelligently about a wide variety of topics. <laughs> and he's also a colleague of mine um, at Bitcraft. And I'm secretly giving the whole Bitcraft some uh, some exposure on the pod. So, uh, Sebastian, welcome to the show. Uh, how, how are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, man. So it's a lot of fun out here. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I the newsletter uh, sends out. I'm, I've been a fan oh, of it for a number of years. It's a, it's a good it's a good read. And the, the best type of newsletters are the ones where you agree with most of the time, but you disagree with sometimes. Because if you agree with it all the time, then it's probably a little bit too basic and a little bit too uh, on the nose in terms of uh, its priors and its understanding. Uh, a awesome. bit about myself. Um, my name is Sebastian. I'm a I go by Seth Park on Twitter and on other things. I've been I'm a currently a venture partner here at Bitcraft, as well as the co-founder of a publisher called Infinite Canvas that publishes user-generated games on Roblox, Fortnite Creative, Sandbox VR, Minecraft, etc. Uh, prior to that, I've spent the last you know, eight-ish years in esports, and so I was the the VP of esports for the Houston Rockets, where we created Clutch Gaming, the League of Legends team that we then were able to sell to the fine folks over at the Harris Blitzer Group and the 76ers. And prior to that, I ran a team called Team Archon. And before that, I ran user acquisition at Namecheap, the domain registrar, where we sponsored esports teams. And before that, way back in the beginning, about 10 years ago, so classics by especially from the perspective of kids who are on Roblox, uh, you know, worked on Android games or Android ports of really fun mobile games like Sword and Sorcery and Dots and, and games like that, World of Goo. So classics like that. So I've um, been having a lot of fun, especially with digital memorabilia and digital assets since my time at Namecheap, where we did a lot of stuff in the domain name industry. And so it's a pleasure to be here and looking forward to having a really fun conversation around sort of the intersections of all of these communities and all this fun. Super. Awesome. Cool. And then finally, we have Antubel Moreda, who I've personally never met, but he came very highly recommended by Manu. Um, and he's also building a super cool blockchain game. So Antubel, can you share a little bit more about yourself and what you're up to? Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure with such a great company as well. Uh, my name is Antubel. I'm one of the project leads and the game designer at MetaGuardians, uh, a new project that we just launched a couple of months ago. Um, before that, I have about 17 years of experience in video games, mostly in game design and product roles at companies like Vivendi Universal Games, Electronic Arts, or Flash Games, where I met Manu, actually. Um, Working on games like Bejewel, Dance vs. Zombies, uh, Zombie Concept, Nonstop Night, and dozens of others. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I've, I've played all of that stuff. I'm sorry, I'm going to just interrupt. That's awesome, dude. <laughs> like, it's like, like Plants vs. Zombies and Zuma's Revenge. Like, those are like staples, you know, like a, a while ago, but like I played the shit out of those games. Well done. Nice, nice. <laughs> We need to bring back those tower, def- tower defense games. That's what we need in this world, that's honestly. Right, that's right. I agree. On the blockchain. Mm-hmm. That's what you're saying, yeah. right? 
100%. Yeah, that's it. All right. Cool. All right. Let's um yeah, let, let's dive into the conversation, the, the meat of this. So the goal is of the discussion um is to to gain a better understanding or or maybe perhaps find some agreement on how we're going to get to the next 100 million blockchain game blockchain gamers. Um and so as a matter of definition, so a definition of a blockchain game is any game that stores any assets on a blockchain. Um and I'd like to extend or, or make our definition of a blockchain gamer a bit more narrow because um, I've heard talks about some games who are wanting to fully, you know, abstract away everything blockchain related. Um, and I, I'd like um, to extend our definition of blockchain gamers to only include people that actually are in control of their assets. So they own the private keys to the wallets that contain the blockchain assets that they play with. Does that make sense or, or are we like, do I have some disagreements immediately? I mean, I think it makes sense generally. I guess the, the question I'd ask or, or push on would be what if the, the ownership bit of the game assets are abstracted as well, right? So like you do own the asset, but in order to own the asset, you need to go through some type of obfuscated or like third party claiming mechanism in order to pull it out, right? So for example, by your definition, um, in Axie Infinity, in order to claim the SLP, you have to like then wait, have a two-week holding period, and then transfer it to yourself. Do you technically own those assets? Is will that count, or is it more that like it has to be sent directly into your wallet immediately? I would say because at some point you can actually claim it, and it goes outside of the system. Um, I guess I would include it. Yeah, we can. You can. You're making hard for me already, Sebastian. You can say like you know, yeah. you 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 have a claim. It's just a timed claim, so therefore, it, yeah, it kind of is already yours. You just have to be patient for it. Okay, I guess. Okay, all right, cool. So we have that out of the way. Um, and and I guess my first question is: so the discussion is how we're going to get there. Um, I guess first I'd like to hear if if you think that we are able to get there. Like, is this even possible? Um, and, and I guess now the, the skeptics can ra ra raise their hands and say, no, we're never going to make it because it's all a scam. Um, I don't know. You'll what are your thoughts? So um, I, I tend to be a skeptic just because, um, and, and I'll, I'll explain why, so to help you understand. But so, the, so I first, to date myself, I first graduated for a master's degree back in 2000. And so I just hit the, the, the labor market, you know, I've been a student and it's like, all right, let me go work for some cool startup. And then six months later, they pulled the rug right from under me. Right. And so, you know, that was the OG rug pool, I guess. It's like, yeah. so you're like, oh, I'm going to yeah. be making all this money now. No, you're not. You're going to be unemployed. It's like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> and so, and then the same thing happened in 2008. So I've just sort of been bruised and battered with financial uh, crises uh, throughout my career. So I'm generally kind of like, yeah, when a lot of bankers start smiling really wide, it's that's the, that's the time to like run, right? To like to really like nail mm. things down and like, you know, batten the hatches and like get serious. So that's what's happening now too, right? And so I personally believe in the vision of Web3. I think blockchain as a technology is going to be revolutionary. And I believe that it's a an evolutionary uh, transition that's... Um, as much as we're all building it, it's like we don't have any say over this. This, I think, is just a natural uh, progression of how people interact and how digital environments facilitate those interactions, whether that's transactional and monetary or whether that's just playful and exchange-wise and exchange-based. So, so I'm on board with all of that. 
and also scarred and bruised uh, for my uh, throughout my career. So I tend to be a little bit like, okay, when I see too many people agree with each other, eh, that's not that's not right. And so to put it on the metric of a hundred million blockchain gamers, I think it's a fair question, right? Like, what's it's it's a bit of an arbitrary round number, but at the same time, that would sustain the markets uh, pretty well. So to give you some context, like uh, League of Legends at its peak had 100 million monthly active users, right? And that game was so mm-hmm. large that despite Dota 2 being also very awesome, uh, that has only like whatever, 15 million uh, concurrent uh, actives, monthly actives at its peak. So you have to kind of ask like, was League of Legends, is that a genre or is that just a game in its own right? And so blockchain gaming, can it be bearded in something like that? Like it needs to break out of that. Can, so if 100 million to me, in other words, isn't all that much, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, when World of Warcraft came out in 2004, they thought that they would need, that they if they could get 400,000 people over its lifetime, that would be amazing success, right? They had been looking at uh, EverQuest and they thought, oh, that's awesome. If we can get 400,000 people to subscribe, we're going to be totally winners and, you know, Activision is going to pay us double and bonuses, blah, blah, blah. They, they, they broke that number in two months and then they ran it all the way to like 15 million at its peak. So the idea of 100 million today seems, despite me being a skeptic, seems low. So mm-hmm. let me start there. I, 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 um, I was like, hey, I remember that example from World of Warcraft. And then I was like, oh, yeah, it's from that book I read. And then it's like, oh, you wrote that book. Yeah, I did. That makes did. sense. It's all um, coming together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, okay, let, let's put it then differently. Let's not put it like a number of it. Like how big as a percentage of the total number of gamers? Can it, can it compete with mobile? Can it compete with console and PC, right? I mean, so it's it's funny because... Candidly, like the 100 million number was such an easy question, right? And so it's it's a, it's a little sad in the sense that like it's always, it's like the answer is yes, it's going to get to 100 million gamers. The question is, I think, the time scale, right? Like, is it going to get there in the next 12 months? I'd be incredibly surprised if it gets there in 12 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it gets there in 24 months, I'd honestly still be pretty shocked it gets there in 24 months, right? But okay. if you give me like a five, 10 year time span, yeah, I mean, like, I think it's a no brainer. Like, uh, I think the better example than League of Legends probably would be Steam, right? Steam has something like a billion plus accounts on it with about 100 million active users right now. And that's probably a better genre defining bit. Now, I think the question though, as to whether or not it'll be as big or bigger than mobile gaming is, is, is one that's almost impossible to hit on the, on the flip side, right? Mm-hmm. Because now we're talking about technology platforms like the hardware platforms, right? Almost by definition, I'd imagine the total number of blockchain gamers will have to be smaller than the number of mobile gamers or PC gamers, just as a function of like, hey, it's a subset of a larger number. And mm. so uh, if there are a billion so people in the world who have a phone who are playing games on them, there's no way we're going to have capture all 1 billion of those mobile gamers, right? Like it's going to be a subset of that. And so I actually think the number is somewhere in between. I think the bigger question and something that um, Yost like touched upon was like, hey, when World of Warcraft came to the conclusion of 400,000 is the break-even number, at which point 
this game is sustainable and workable. I am curious, like where the blockchain break-even number is, because Annabelle, I know for stuff you guys are working on, some of these whale-based gamers, like the break-even number is like three. There's like these three guys. <laughs> if, you, if you get all three guys to play your game, you're break-even, right? And so I'm curious. I think the more interesting question is honestly, like, what is the break-even number for the games and masses? Is it 100 million? Is it 200 million? Is it 10 million? Or or is it three? <laughs> yeah. Honestly, what I've seen right now with a lot of these NFT pre-sales is that you can break even even before you write any like any type of code, right? The only thing you need to do is make some big promises, uh, sell some NFTs. Uh, perhaps if 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 you're you know already working hard on it, you can you can add some some cool artwork, and that, that's all you need to break even. Um, and then and then it's up to you to fulfill your promises or not. Um, what what are your thoughts on this, uh, Antobel? Yeah, I think what you just said is true. Or, or... It's been true in the last four to six months in the market. Uh, I think things are changing already. Uh, it won't be enough going forward to just promise the moon uh, and be able to raise a lot of money. Um, I, I was there when I was in PopCap. I was there at the beginning of iPhone, Android gaming, uh, early days of free-to-play as well. At, at the time, the market was still dominated by premium games that you have to pay to download. Uh, Free-to-play grew amazingly fast, uh, probably faster than a lot of people expected. And mm. I see these, um, there are more challenges here for sure that, that they sure we're going to be talking about. Uh, but I see it similar. I see a lot of people feeling the same way. This is a new world. This is going to be the next big thing in gaming. Uh, I think it's the first thing I see in many years that really has the the potential to disrupt the video game industry uh, and to mm-hmm. challenge free-to-play as the dominant business model. And, and you know, I'm, I'm 10 years used as junior in this in this world, and mm-hmm. but I, I do remember specifically the initial change. You, you mentioned League of Legends, right? And I remember specifically the League of Legends competition at the time was League of Legends was this like new free to play version. And it was considered a worse and less technically advanced quote unquote version than the paid the, the paid version, which was I think S2's Heroes of New Earth at the time. Mm-hmm. And then Valve had obviously um, Dota 2. But but we saw that shift work really quickly, right? It just it was just like a change in paradigm in terms of how you monetize the different parts of the funnel, right? Like it used to be, hey, you do a lot of advertising, you convert some number at like $30 a copy, and you go from there. And and Riot came around, especially on the PC version of League of Legends, where we're like, hey, no, we're just going to acquire 100 million users. And then if we can convert, you know, a fraction of 1% of 10 basis points of these people, we can make more money than Heroes of New Earth. And mm-hmm. so it's it's certainly I, I certainly I certainly remember that change being so revolutionary. And certainly one of the things that really drives me to better understand blockchain has been that felt like such a no-brainer to me at the time, right? Ten years ago, where I was like, "Wow!" Like when I saw the shift over to free-to-play, I was like, yeah, "This makes sense." Like more people want to access, and I was close enough to being a broke college student. I remembered <laughs> not having the money to like be able to afford games, and you know, only playing StarCraft because it was the <laughs> only game that you can only pick one of those games, right? Uh, and and I think similarly now as like what what the next generation chooses to do in terms of their playing habits is something that we should be like very aware of and and relying on. Yeah, I think um, agreed, agreed. Yeah. I think it will be we'll see more of a hybrid solution. So I think more blockchain. You ask, is it going to be bigger than mobile gaming? Uh, no, because it's a subset, as 
Bastian said. Uh, but I think we won't get there without having blockchain games on mobile. And likewise, I think a lot of them right now, you need that NFT to play or something like that. I mentioned free to play. Uh, I believe a lot of blockchain games will end up being free to play in addition to play to earn or whatever other business model they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Antobel, you you mentioned challenges, and so right now you're building a um, a blockchain game yourself. What do you see as your main challenges in in getting the you know the the amount of users that you're you're dreaming of in your wildest dreams? Um, yeah, I think there are different ones. Uh, there's definitely the challenges that arise from the technology that we are using. So, so I'm a huge blockchain enthusiast, but I think it's fair to admit that the technology is still a work in progress. Um, and there are definitely a lot of user experience issues to do with uh, getting onboarded into blockchain. So that's mm-hmm. definitely one of the big challenges. And as a game maker, there's only so much we can do. We are also limited by the technology that we are using, of course. Um, I, I think another challenge is probably reputation. I see a lot of gamers um, that really have an adverse reaction to crypto. No, they they hear crypto and they think it's a scam, or, or it, it doesn't have the best name. And in a way, that's similar to how a lot of people uh, had an adverse reaction to free to play as well. That business model mm-hmm. when when it first came out. Um, so definitely, user experience reputation, um, probably two of the biggest ones. Also, I think to really get to the big numbers, we really need to get on mobile. At the moment, there are some challenges there, especially when it comes to the policies in the app stores uh, and what is permitted to do over there. Um, Lastly, maybe in a more personal note, it's a challenge, but something that really excites me as well, which is I'm not used to work so close to the community. I think in blockchain, in crypto, that's really important. And in our project, we have a fantastic community. I think we have about uh, 70,000 members on Discord just in a couple of months. They are all super welcoming, super friendly. Uh, they want to help the project grow. That's been a fantastic experience for me. But it's also a lot of work on top of making a game, just keeping that engagement with the community. Yeah. That's really interesting. So the conventional way of making games, and Antibel, you mentioned that you'd worked with PopCap on some some of these classics, right? The production and development process of something like that is very different compared to like a blockchain-based game and a creative process, I imagine, right? And, And then specifically... And I think that that's one of the big Web3 promises is that game development, as I understand it, has always been this process where you basically disappear behind some closed door for six years with some budget that's insane. And then you come out and you hope that you sell, you know, a zillion copies in the first two, three weeks after at launch. You do a big marketing campaign and like do all that. Today, gaming is, since then, it has moved more towards uh, you know, sort of an ongoing engagement with your fan base more than anything else, right? So I, I find it so interesting to see, for instance, Kickstarter as a 
as an antecedent or a precursor to what you see now with all of these like, oh, connect your wallet to Phantom Galaxies and you'll get like the drop, which by the way, I think is coming on the 22nd or something. But so it's it's you're engaging with an audience constantly and that's part of your job now, whereas previously you could just close the door and, you know, I'm the great, you know, benevolent designer and I'm going to make this awesome thing. So that's a very different thing. I, you know, I, in my own modest way, mm-hmm. I guess, I find um, like writing is, is is similar perhaps in that like I now through a newsletter and, you know, social media, I'm in constant contact with all these other people. Yeah, I got, through my work with the Makers Fund, I, uh, you know, my, my buddy, uh, Matt Ball, Mr. Metaverse, right? It's, it's like, so these are your peers, and it's just constantly before you have a thought, somebody's already kicked a giant hole in it. It's, it's very challenging to be busy, creative in that way. And so I totally understand that more conventional game developers have a hard time accepting something like blockchain because it facilitates and necessarily obligates you as a creative to constantly engage with who would ultimately be your user base. Uh, you know, Which is to say, of course, user-generated content, that's where you just create some kind of playground or a sandbox and they just go nuts. But you know, blockchain games seems very much focused on just like a Kickstarter where you just get some excitement and then you raise around and then you get the second tier and the third tier and then everybody gets a hoodie and like a, you know, get their name on the credit or whatever. And so, so you, you have fan engagement as part of your creative process. This is radically different than sitting in some lab for two years, building up your perfect vision and then launching them ready kind of thing. Or when you run out of money, I guess. So, so I wonder if that's if that's your experience. Like, if 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 you see a transition in in the in the creative process. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think even outside blockchain games, uh, we've seen that happening more, especially in the India space, where where people are engaging more with the communities from the early stages of development. Uh, mm-hmm. In my personal experience, that hasn't been the case until now, until this project that we started recently. Uh, but I think ultimately is is something that enriches the process. Uh, yes, it changes the creative process, but I think um, all that input ultimately makes makes the output better. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because like I I also, I also would like echo the point where it's I don't think it's necessarily a push from blockchain as much as just the creative process updating over the last 10 years. My, one of my favorite games I played recently actually is a Legion Tower Defense 2 um, mm-hmm. from Jules and those guys, the former rioters. And they, they had this great post where they've been working on it before them with not much external input for seven years and 10 months. And that's insane, in my opinion. Like people should not do that. <laughs> like they should they should get more community input. <laughs> uh, but it's, but yeah. I, I think a lot about uh, just even terms of game patching, right? So like League of Legends patches every two weeks, right? And, and that seems like a ridiculous thing from the perspective if you had mm-hmm. sent mm-hmm. me back to the days of Brood War or StarCraft II even, where they patch once a year or once a generation, right? And so it's, whereas now, especially for games like on Roblox or Fortnite Creative or even games that are on mobile, you're seeing updates coming out like once every four days, once every five days, the, the update mm-hmm. cycles so quickly. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious if that's, if, if that's just going to be the future regardless, right? Like that's not necessarily just a blockchain gaming thing. That's just a, a new style of game development that's become more in vogue in terms of communities mattering more and more over time. Mm-hmm. 
And who do you think will be most successful at this type of, of game development? And, and assuming that this is the future of the way, you know, these games get made with a lot of community involvement, um, you, also just, you just said that this is completely different from how traditional game developers approach it. Um, can you then see, you know, non-traditional game developers have an edge, you know, the indie devs that have experience? Oh, always, always, always. I mean, and that's purely uh, because I, I like to refer to them as legacy publishers. Because you know, you gotta you gotta kiss the ring. Like they, they, you must respect what they've built. Um, uh, like a Take Two or an Activision. Um, at the same time, it's a business of risk mitigation for them. Like they are incredibly, uh, how you say, vulnerable to a loss of, uh, you know, how you say, eroding the brand and, and losing control of the franchise if they run at these things. So. I did a bunch of interviews with uh, executives around uh, 2008 when mobile gaming, you know, had its moment and nobody was really believing it. So Ubisoft would tell me things like, yeah, we're not, yeah, sure. We'll, we'll dip a toe in the water, but it's not in our interest to run at this. And the, and the reason is we stand to lose the most. If it turns out to be, if mobile gaming turns out to be a total disaster, then we use, we, we lose hundreds of millions. Whereas some mm -hmm. newcomer, whatever, You know, like they might lose their business, but it's not hundreds of millions and, and hundreds of jobs. So, so they tend to ride the break. They tend to kind of like, yeah, well, sure, we'll throw it. In. Like we see them with the metaverse. Like, yeah, sure, we'll mention it in the earnings reports, but we have no idea what any of this means. Cryptocurrency, yeah, sure. Have you made a decision? Do you know the difference between L1 and L2? I don't know. You know, it's like, so they've, Zynga just hired uh, Matt Wolf, like, um, former Coca-Cola esports guy from Red Bull, you know, like, so there is some, there's some seniority kind of coagulating and coming together on this, um, but it's very early stage. So the, so the, what's going to be interesting to me is that you had the legacy publishers like the Activisions and Take-Twos that kind of didn't really feel free to play was a big deal until it totally was. And then of course, those companies that made a big splash at the time, they're going to be the ones on the back foot now saying like, well, should we, run towards this or not. And I think companies like Zynga can do it, but you know, like it's, what's Tencent going to do? What's, like it's the biggest publisher in the world, right? Mm -hmm. 30 billion, $32 billion a year. So like, what are they going to do? And how are they going to do it? Are they just going to invest in rinky-dink little companies? I hope it works. So, so, the, what, so the newcomers from a decade ago are now the incumbents and it creates a huge opportunity it's sort of, as it should. Like it's, it's cyclical in that sense. As the technology resets or evolves, Uh, you know, a generation of new developers has an opportunity to kind of get in because there's no natural apex predators, right? There's no um, giant billion-dollar company trying to outbid you on marketing channels and all of this stuff, like because they're all terrified right now. They all think it's uh, digital distribution was all about piracy and the anxiety around Russians stealing your software, right? And <laughs> that turned and and Gabe Newell said, like, look, that's that's a market inefficiency. We just need to build better distribution, and he did, and there we are, right? Steam is a huge success. But none of the publishers wanted to do that. So blockchain, yeah, it's totally broken right now. And there's a lot of uh, issues, but that's the mindset that you're dealing with right now. And that's the mm -hmm. opportunity for indies, absolutely. And by the way, that's not a that's not irrational from the perspective of the publishers either, right? Like it's it's completely rational for them to de defend their position. It's it's like Kodak inventing the digital mm -hmm. camera, right? Like people give them so much crap about it, and that's I've I've always found those academic papers to be a little bit BS, right? Because if your entire business is built on 
making film, <laughs> like taking film and making photos out of it, why would you want to disrupt your own mm-hmm. business in order to take a shot at this new technology, right? And so- How could you? How right? could you? You know, It seems fiduciarily irresponsible even. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I, I don't want to, uh, I don't mean this in a, uh, in a, in a negative sense so much, but I worked at Nielsen. Uh, I, in fact, I've worked at Nielsen on three different occasions. And, you know, they do audience measurement for television. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> audiences have moved on, but this has been a business that's been, you know, running really well for like 50 years. They make $6 billion a year. They've had the hardest time trying to get in like contemporary entertainment measurements for all these reasons, because of Netflix and because of Spotify and blah, blah, blah. You know, like you're dealing with Apple now, like, can you get them? And you're relying on Facebook and Google for some of this information. So, so the, the ecosystem in which even just measurement of audiences takes place. And, you know, to just put it in an adjacent category where we're not actually making creative content, we're just in the space. These large companies, they're just not necessarily set up to make a full 180 turn into some new technology. They have to kind of do it more gradually and that just exposes them. But that's in the, to your point, Sebastian, like that's, why would they? Like they're risk mitigated, they're publicly traded. They rely and sit back on their IP. They have this incredible uh, legacies. Like, why would they try to be as agile as some like 20 person studio to, and try to outmaneuver them? That's the dumbest thing they could possibly do, right? So naturally they move much, much slower. Mm-hmm. That makes only sense. So um, I guess we can agree. Yeah, I think I, I generally agree. Um, at the same time, I think maybe not the, the incumbents as in the companies, the big publishers uh, mm-hmm. will be there right now, uh, but definitely the people who's been making games all, all along. Personally, in my network, I see a lot of people that are making the jump to blockchain games or to NFT mm-hmm. games. Uh, I think you are going to need uh, those people, basically, the ones who already have the experience making the games, not necessarily the companies, because, yeah, a lot of mm-hmm. times it doesn't make sense. We are discussing here, uh, how do we get the next 100 million? Well, a lot of companies won't even look at the space until the next 100 million is already there, you know? Right. They are like, exactly. I don't want to be, I don't want to have the first mover advantage. I don't need it. I'll just come in when there's a big enough business. Well, that, that, that's what Activision did, right? Like Activision deliberately did not go into mobile 10 years ago. And then they said, okay, and now we're just going to shell out $5 billion for King Digital. The end, right? This is like, well, I mean, in effect, like um, EA needed a casual division and they bought PopCap for a billion dollars back in the day. It was 2008, 2008 or so. And so it's like, and they, you know, I don't, that we could talk about EA in a separate podcast, but let's see, um, you know, the idea is that these companies, they innovate through acquisition rather than build some R&D lab and try to do it on their own strength. That's totally not in their interest. You have some of them that are a bit more adventurous. For instance, I think I remember reading Ubisoft is experimenting a bit with Mm-hmm, blockchain mm-hmm. and some of the other uh, technologies out there. Personally, I was talking recently to, to one of the executives at a mobile game company and what they are looking into, they are looking now, okay, how can we integrate NFTs in what we are already doing in our mobile games? So at the same time, some of them will get in the space, but they are not necessarily trying to innovate, build something completely new but they are mostly trying to figure out, okay, okay, how do I add this thing mm-hmm. to what I'm already yeah. doing? 
How, how concerned are you guys with the uh, the upcoming, or at least that's why they, what I feel like the crypto gaming culture wars? So I, I see a lot of people um, who are you know making the jump from traditional gaming companies into blockchain gaming, um, and I don't see a lot of people making the reverse move. By the way, um, but I hear that they're like being exiled by their ex colleagues and and friends, and, and they don't want to talk to them. Um, we've now seen that. I think, I think it was like Game Developers Australia or something wouldn't post anything about blockchain games anymore. How concerned are you about, you know, that's inhibiting the growth of this of this ecosystem? What do you think, uh, Sebastian? Uh, I'm not concerned at all, personally. I mean, I certainly think it's it's one of those interesting moments where, uh, candidly, I think the uh, w one fun fact I've seen from people who are like blockchain native is that they tend to underestimate how complicated game development is. And my favorite thing is that people who are game development native tend to underestimate how complicated blockchain development is, right? It's and and, and my favorite group are the people who are not native to either, who uh, tend to underestimate everything uh, in terms <laughs> of the difficulty of anything, right? Like and so, uh, like I mean, I think there's just a there's a time and place. There's going to be some really interesting stuff. I I remember full well people thinking that mobile games and flash games weren't games right that they that the game any game loop that's not 300 hours is not considered a proper game any game loop that doesn't you know, come in the <laughs> box and have your access to storefronts is not a proper game and and that's and that's certainly not my worldview right I, I certainly find some of these games that you know these 17 16 year old creators are putting on Roblox or Fortnite creative and Minecraft to be just as compelling as the AAA games I've been playing recently and similarly what we're mm -hmm. going to see is there's going to be some like really great compelling blockchain games that are going to move the needle in the same way I think Plants vs Zombies is a great example right in, in my worldview Plants vs Zombies and Sword and Sorcery were the two first proper games on mobile that really opened my eyes personally to the power of mobile Right, like prior to that, there was a lot of stuff that was ported over, and who the hell cared what they were. But then you had these games that were like native to the platform that like really expressed the upside of the platform. And then I know for both myself and my colleagues and friends who are in the game development world, we all like, okay, this is a proper platform. Let's do more stuff here and not just work on Sims or or the or the World of Warcrafts of the world. I think similarly, we will see a lot of pushback now for sure, um, especially given the. The heuristics around blockchain, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, insofar as a great game comes around, like people who are game developers know a great game when they see one, and so they'll probably embrace that as as it is. Granted, it is very hard, I think, for people on the on the mobile gaming side, especially when you're used to acquiring users for like you know cents on the dollar to to then evaluate a game like Axie Infinity where they're like, hey, do you want to evaluate this game? You need to give us an ETH. Oh, by the way, an ETH is like $4,500 right now. So you can pay us $4,500 so you can play test our game, right? Like that that probably is such a large mental jump for a lot of people. And, and candidly, like that probably won't be how blockchain or even NFT gaming will be candidly in the next 12 to 18 months, right? Like that, that's going to be probably a larger shift where we're going to see far easier access that doesn't require necessarily a, a scholarship or whatnot. Is this, uh, Jost, do you agree? Is this similar to the the move to free-to-play? Yeah, free-to-play at the time was like, oh, you're basically just prostituting yourself, right? Like you're, you're, you're deviating mm. from the great craft of game design and, and you know, you just, you're nickel and diming uh, customers. You know, I would have developers from like big studios. I was like, that's how they would phrase it: nickel and diming, and uh, you know, things like King Digital, 
like Candy Crush is like the bane of everyone's existence. It was super popular, making lots of money. They're like, oh, they all hated it because, well, it's not a game. Uh, it's kind of a game, but not really a game. It's not single player narrative game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, I get it. But so, you know, so I teach this uh, class at NYU that's a hybrid between the business school and the game center. And the question is always kind of the same. It's like, okay, so what do you make of that, right? And, and to f- as someone who doesn't design games, admittedly, the way I look at it is like, well, it's just a design challenge. Like, it, you know, it's game design is always sort of figuring out, like, how do you make something that's exciting and engaging and fun and creates a social layer or has some kind of emotional payoff or some kind of evocative experience and also do it for money, right? And to combine both of those things, like, you, you could, there's decades of literature on how, you know, the, the popularization of American football uh, uh, change the sport. And of course, like you have what they call the leather helmet stage, like League of Legends was very keen on using that metaphor when they were doing the early days of esports, the leather helmet stage. But that was a very different type of American football than it is to, today. It's like this sort of like glossy ballet, right? It's like everybody's like super shiny and like super, but it's very, they could used to be much grittier, much more like mean uh, as a game. And now it's much more, you know, televisable. Mm-hmm. In a sense, right, and so it, so the the polish of the game has changed. You see that in, in lots of sports. So game video game design is the same way, and I think as the revenue model and the new technologies uh, kind of shift and audiences move, it's up to the designers and the creative layer, the creative class, to solve for those design challenges. That's that's their job. That's what they set out to do, right? And so free to play was one. Um, Subscription is another one where people were kind of like, why would I do that? You know, they're going to, like, there was some backlash to World of Warcraft. It's like, well, why would I pay them 15 bucks every month? I already paid for the game. What the hell? It's like, well, there's server costs. People didn't understand mm-hmm. that. And so they were sort of, again, so, you know, that's that's part of the opportunity for newcomers, right? So the, the, the real challenge, I think, is not so much for incumbent developers to understand blockchain games. I think what blockchain hasn't done very well yet is uh, be a little bit more modest, which is understandable because we've just been stuck at home for like two years. And, you know, isn't it wonderful? I mean, this is a repeat of history a century ago. The roaring 20s were also kicked off by a pandemic. And that led to like this, you know, exuberance for like half a decade or whatever. And everybody's like, you know, sky was the limit, blah, blah, blah. And you see this incredible built up need to go out and celebrate and connect with others. So. So blockchain today is a little bit the same, like you know the board aid yacht club party last week or two weeks ago in New York. Like, this is extravagance of a on a scale I haven't seen in two decades. Like like even like the dot com days were n- nothing like this, and so that extravagance kind of makes them feel like they're right about everything. And blockchain game developers and and the investors behind them, they could certainly use a little bit more nuance and understanding. They could perhaps, for instance solve some of the endemic issues in the games industry, like, you know, diversity, uh, you know, the lack of accountability, like uh, input from audiences and engagement. There's all these new ways to think about it. Blockchain, the blockchain generation, whatever, uh, they're not thinking about that either, right? They're just, they seem a little grabby. So so some of the criticism is, I think, Mm. warranted. Uh, but getting those two groups to talk to each other more nicely and more more politely, I think, is, uh, I think, the next step in all this. Yeah. Crypto bros, you've heard it. I've also taken notes. Get your shit together. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, let's um, let's switch gears a little bit, and um, I'd like to talk about who. So you know, let's get back. We we already decided 100 million might not be a very high target, um, but those will be still the early movers, right? And so I'd like to understand how you think, like who you think will be these first 100 million crypto gamers. Um, Antubel, maybe you can kick this off. What type of you know players do you have in mind when you design your game? In our particular project, we we definitely want to be as mass market as possible, but we also realize that uh, that's not the people we need to target right now. That is more of a long-term ambition for us. Obviously, at this point, it's, it's a lot easier to, to get in people that are already familiar with the crypto space, that already have maybe a wallet installed and configured. Um, and we have a small team, so there's only so much we can do, but uh, that's something we are targeting. As we move forward, as the project grows, we want to do also a, an educational side uh, with what we do. Basically, uh, what does NFT mean? Uh, how do you get a wallet? You can buy Ethereum or whatever it is right here on our website. You don't need to go to an exchange, you know? Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of education to do right now, probably, I believe, uh, Americans in general, the Anglo-Saxon world seems to be a lot into crypto. Europe is also pretty big when it comes to blockchain gaming. Of course, there are uh, countries in Southeast Asia with a lot of players. So that's something that we, we are keeping in mind as well. And we have a lot of people in our community from Indonesia, Philippines, mm. Vietnam, these kind of countries as well. So I think definitely uh, in, in terms of geographics, uh, that's where most of the people are going to come first. Um, in terms of other aspects, I would imagine, yeah, especially because there are some challenges to be in the app stores on mobile at the moment. Um, people that have a PC, people that are more tech savvy um, are the people that is going to be easier, I think, to get into the space. Hmm. And how important is speculation here for you? Um, I mean, whenever I join one of these discords, the feeling I get is that they're not really there to, uh, to play a great game. They're there in the hope that whatever asset that they own becomes more valuable. How do you reason around that? I, I think is. I think there's a bit of a mix, and that's what we see in our community. It is true that some people are there to speculate. There's people who are there uh, for both reasons. No, they, they want to see an amazing game and super excited about the mm -hmm. game. But at the same time, they are also maybe thinking in financial terms too. Uh, personally, that's not something we like to encourage. Mm. Um, I, I think it's typical in the general crypto space at the moment uh, and we don't want to follow the pump and dump and uh, all these kind of things that happen in the space you know mm -hmm. do you uh do you market your game as play to earn say again do you call your game a play to earn game or do you call it a blockchain game at the moment we are still using some of the blockchain terminology when we talk about our game but to be honest we would like to move slowly towards making that more invisible. So we have collectibles, we have a game where you can earn money, uh, but 
we would like to start dropping the, the crypto-specific terminology over time. Uh-huh. What are your thoughts on the, on on the you know the blockchain gamers these days, Just? I mean, so let's uh, let's argue the opposite, right? Let's let's um. So while I I'm all for the pursuit and the integrity of an art form. What if blockchain game just allows people to actually spend their real money in a game, and that's part of the game? So you ask this question: like, are they here to play or here to speculate? It's the um, I gotta wear my academic hat now and and say something like. Um, there's there's one sort of canonical text in a lot of game theory and game studies that is um, it's a, it's on deep play by Clifford Geertz and so this is anthropologist and he goes to like this village and of course he's like this giant westerner uh, you know this weird guy with his wife and they're sort of not, not invaders but they're sort of strange to the town and so they have a hard time getting into it and getting finding sort of a connection with the local community to kind of like understand what they're about until they are introduced to cockfights, like two roosters going at it. And so then he starts to describe how that in and of itself is a microcosm of the social world of that town where people make these deep play bets. They bet way more than they can afford, but that's sort of like a way of displaying their social status to all the other participants, the, the rest of the town folk. And so you realize all of a sudden, like that's a little bit like if going to Vegas, where you know, well, you can't go behind the velvet rope because that's the high rollers, big roller, big stakes table, and you don't belong there. You're over here, the crappy one, right? And so, for the same reason that we have VIP section in clubs, it's like so. So people naturally want to distinguish themselves, and so I think blockchain gaming isn't really inventing anything new. They're just, as games have become mainstream, uh, you know, really the only way to enter money into the game has been like social casino which i'm personally not a huge fan of i think it's a little bit of a rudimentary format it's like yeah there hasn't been a lot of innovation there it's just like more slot stuff cool but really that's just sort of a marketing funnel for casinos not super cool and that really doesn't appeal to like a younger generation you know, my mom loved that kind of stuff but that's that's about it so the idea of blockchain gaming to allow me to kind of put my money where my mouth is right in effect like it's not too dissimilar from an esports, perhaps, where basically you know you, it's competitive, and I'm actually wagering something that is of meaning to me personally in my life. I could pay rent with this and pay for groceries, or I could just spend it here. That that's been going on for centuries, and so blockchain gaming sort of just enables that more than encourages it. And I think it's so. In other words, it's not that blockchain is necessarily evil. Of course, it can be, and there's a lot of, like I said, it's still very broken. But this is very common human behavior so it's just resurfacing the technology sort of caught up to the place where now we can do it so now it's up to the designers to create some kind of fun theme park around that and to say like look by the time you spent 20 bucks this is it's time to get a notification saying like okay that was 20 bucks that's the limit we set before you joined like it's time for you to go home now or whatever like you know sort of have some railing uh, to prevent people from going overboard but you know, it's it's so easy to think, oh, we were all just innocent and minding our business, and then blockchain gaming is corrupting everything. Like, no, people have always been like this. This is an observable and demonstrable asset of or aspect of, of human life and social life. And so, but what if that's what we want in a digital environment? Like, would that be so bad? Would that you know why can't why can't that like can we only live in some idealized version online where we don't have vices 
Is that really true? Like, I don't know. It seems naive to think about people that way, right? They sort of like, they want to control them that way. If I can add a bit of nuance to what I was saying. So, so definitely there is a financial component and even mm-hmm. the game we are making is a play and earn game. So we want to allow people to earn money. Uh, mm-hmm. Eventually on top of the play and earn core, we want to, if possible, add a DeFi-like a financial layer on top of the game. But for me, yes. uh, I, I see earning, I see investing, and those things are great. And I think games can help bring those things to the masses. Basically, investment opportunities that people don't have today, games can bring that to those people. Uh, the one thing I personally we don't like and we don't like to encourage in our project is the speculation. So right. earning is great, investment is great, Speculating, I, I hope is something that will go away as the space grows and matures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that I would I would second that. I mean, it seems like so much of that is a little bit of a Ponzi scheme. Like get in now. I mean, this is sort of to me that's an endemic to like crypto in general. It's like let's get in now so that you know the Gishi with the Shiba Inu. I bought it at some tiny cost to me, and I'm hoping that. A thousand suckers will join later so that it will go up in price and then I'll be rich. Like that's that's a Ponzi scheme or whatever. It's like that's not like I'm not trying to be part of that. Like that's not liberating. That's just sort of a redistribution of wealth, you know, whatever. And so what's what's exciting is to find a mechanic where people become more literate, for instance, when it comes to investment and and playing and 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 really understand how these larger mathematical models and how the monetary system and the economy at large governs your life every day. Like, I mean, just fundamentals, like pay taxes and like figure out like the value of things and creating a portfolio. Okay, okay, build a a portfolio of NFTs. What would you build, right? And so in a sort of playful setting, you get to familiarize yourself with that. These are things that speak to a much broader set of experiences of everyday life that I don't think anybody else is touching. Like you have, like I guess, Sim City, sort of like yeah, suburban life, or the, the Sims. You can kind of simulate suburban life, like you get a job and get a wife mm-hmm. or a husband, buy a house. But so, you know, perhaps that's part of the bigger opportunity to kind of really become a microcosm of contemporary life uh, and and teach people some stuff. I don't know. Mm. There's something there. I think you you really hit the nail on the head. Uh, recently, a few days ago, Chris Dixon shared a video on YouTube called. Um, game work or something and basically that video try to make the case that um, games are actually almost exactly like very repetitive tasks that we do um, as we would do in a normal job but it becomes fun just because we don't have to do it because we're like free to do it Um, Mm -hmm. and so it basically makes the case that games are basically like a a representation of of real life Um, Mm -hmm. and but I agree with you Joost I think um one of the reasons I personally believe, and this is not financial advice, that some of the profile pick uh, collections like the Bored Apes or the Punks will do great is just because we, as humans, very much of what we do is virtue signaling, right? We want to show others that we are, you know, either smart or rich or, or you know, good or, or, uh, or yeah, I don't know, intelligent, all that stuff. Um, and, you know, that's one way to do it in a virtual world. And that was pretty hard until now. Mm-hmm. Well, you can, there's a record now, right? Like currently, you just have to take my word for the fact that uh, I was playing uh, Frozen, the Frozen Throne spinoff 
Dota before it was League of Legends and Dota 2. Mm. Right? Like, yeah, that, I, I'm telling you that you don't know, but yeah, there's yeah, going to yeah. be some matter of public records. Like, oh, you've been playing this. Like, and, you know, not to say we all have a resume, but there's just going to be some, uh, as life becomes increasingly digital and online and takes place online, there's going to be a, a, the need to manifest things uh, with more uh, history, more background, but more nuance. You know, and I, the, agree. And I think it's. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's. I think that's the language we all speak in a sense uh, on this call. Yeah, but it's you know, it's 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 not a new behavior. No, actually, I fully agree. Fully agree. All right, cool. Um, we're reaching the hour mark, and so um, I, I always like to end off my um, any any type of podcast I do by asking my. Um, you know, podcast members to give me a bold prediction about something and why wouldn't we do a bold prediction about blockchain games? So, um, yeah, I'll give you a few moments to think about one. Um, I don't know if you, if you prepared any, but, uh, Sebastian, I'm going to, I'm going to let you go first. What a pleasure. You have one. <laughs> go ahead. Bold prediction about blockchain games. I mean, like a not bold prediction probably is that, um, this might not be that hard. I actually think NFT games is, are going to undergo a rebrand. One thing I've learned about the blockchain ecosystem is that they are so good. Like this space is so good at rebranding itself, right? In a way that I think other industries can learn from. So if you think about just sort of the evolution of blockchain in general, it went from everything being called Bitcoin, right? And then everything being called tokens, then blockchain and NFT gaming and blockchain gaming. And I heard some the other day call stuff traditional finance as opposed to finance and um, DeFi. And so I certainly think that you'll undergo a couple of cosmetic changes in terms of what they're doing. But I guess my like my quote unquote hot take right now is honestly the, the vast majority of projects that are live today will not be a top 20 game or top 20 project in 10 years. And and I think that's it's not a bearish prediction. It's actually a fairly bullish prediction, frankly, because if you assume this world is growing at anything that resembles a linear and exponential rate, then the likelihood of a project that exists today being in the forefront of a larger world in 10 years is small, right? Like it's almost always the case if you think about exponential growth, that things that are able to like capture larger percentages of the market when the market's larger are bigger than the things that capture a larger percentage when the market's smaller. And so my, my quote unquote hot take is that the, the generation of games that we see already aren't going to be the generation of NFT or blockchain games that we'll see in 10 years time. There will be a new generation. There's going to be a candy crush that's going to crush everyone. There's going to be a supercell that crushes everyone in part because we still just don't know the heuristics and requirements necessary right now. And we certainly have not solved for the fact that costs 5,000 US dollars to play a game. Like it's, it's just one ETH to people who are blockchain native, but my God, that's still 5,000 US dollars to me. <laughs> so so I, I think that's probably the, uh, my quote unquote hot take of the day. All right, cool. And to Will? Not sure if, not sure if a bold prediction, uh, I'm not sure if it will come to happen, but that's a, uh, one of the reasons I'm in the space and what I'm trying to build. I would like to see something like this in the next five to 10 years, which is where I look at the Axie Infinity community and they talk about themselves like a digital nation. Or mm -hmm. I, I was reading an article the other day, uh, this paper, they were saying that uh, play and earn games could be the mass employment of the future noise, the supply chain of the metaverse. Does uh, that's what I see. I see communities becoming more sovereign. 
uh, having their own governance, having their own legal system almost, basically uh, becoming more independent and building really yeah, a, a virtual, a digital nation. Uh, and that's what I would like to see within the next 10 years. That's awesome. Actually, uh, I also believe that um, play to earn might be the universal basic income that uh, people are talking about, where there's always this 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 one thing you can do that's gonna give you like a low but you know decent paycheck where you can you can live off. In reality, it's not that different from free to play today. No, where you have a small percentage of players that are already subsidizing the entire game for everyone else. Um, I see play and earn being something like that, but bringing it to the next level. Mm. I fully agree. All right, Joost. Okay, so then I'll I'll go another way, just for fun. So I'll, I'll predict a, a decline in blockchain gaming in 2022 uh, for a few reasons. One of them is that uh, there's too much venture capital going on and around. The valuations are way too high. The valuations are not too high because the people working at these companies aren't talented. They are very talented. I work with them. Uh, there's just not enough of them, right? So the incredible promise is, uh, that, that exists uh, needs to be delivered on, and there's just not enough people that have experience or speak both the language of blockchain and proper game design, like fun game design. There's, just, there's a talent uh, uh, shortage, Mm-hmm. Just like there's a semiconductor shortage and everything else. There's a so so blockchain gaming is cash rich but talent poor. And for that reason, we're going to see a correction in the market in 2022 where it's just gonna just take a beat, take a breath, catch up with itself. And then the year after that, we're gonna see this tremendous increase because that's when the the the, the stride will hit. Uh, a precursor would be mobile gaming was big, but not until in 2009, Apple approved free to play revenue. For two years, mobile gaming was anemic until that one thing changed, right? So we're going to start seeing something similar in blockchain gaming. Uh, if social gaming was the same, where it was all fun and games in the Wild West, where Zynga was just owning everything, and then Facebook said everybody needs to get onto Facebook credits. So until we see some consolidation, some, some real influx of talent, uh, and some more steady uh, user acquisition, not this frantic, trying to make money quick kind of thing, but real sustainable businesses behind it. Uh, we're going to see volatility and there's going to be some drop off for a bit uh, in 2022. And then 2023 is when we really see the, the the iteration of blockchain gaming that everybody thinks they're investing in today. So so that's my bold prediction for there. Yes, out curiosity, what is the best metric for those of us who aren't academics to track in order to like see the validity or the, the movement of your projection? Right, like, like, what's the best metric that you look at to determine if like blockchain is going up and down, or like what what the user bases are? Or is, is it user bases? Is it players? Is it is it um, release cycles? Like, what's the best metric to track this projection? So, if we're speaking of it, that's an excellent question. So, the um, if we're talking about it in terms of like the business of blockchain gaming, then it's really about um, uh, yeah, three metrics. I would say uh, one of them is just addressable audience like how many humans are actually in this game uh, in this in this industry uh, on the on the demand side which you could probably narrow down and say who is a wallet what wallet do they have uh, but so wallet holders and then you set some minimum saying like okay well you make some transactions or there's some activity in that wallet of course so you get all the duds out so that's that's one the second one is conversion 
uh, okay, what percentage of those people are actually actively using that wallet in the game setting and everywhere else? Is that 2%, 20%, 100 um, So that's really your active audience. So if we have that prediction of 100 million people in blockchain, okay, well, what percentage of them will actually be spending time and money and activity in there? And then finally, the last metric is like, what's the value of that, right? Is that one ETH a month per person or is it like a dollar per month per person, right? And so you really need those three levers to understand if there is uh, what the volatility is like. Um, as well as this, this long-term sustainability. So if if the so for mobile, for instance, uh, the monthly active user base grew you know, exponentially early on, and it's sort of settled. And now, of course, marketing becomes a big problem, and things become very expensive, and that's the whole thing now. Conversion, of course, in the beginning is very high because it's early adopters and people that are savvy and willing to spend. Uh, you see that with blockchain gaming, the same thing. It's all those rich kids, right? Like eighteen to thirty-four year old, like people with, that are affluent and, and willing to spend. You know, what happens when it becomes a mainstream audience is like the number of conversion, the conversion number goes down because it's just average people and they don't have all this. And the same in the last metric is like the average value per user will go down too. So, so, so those three I would look at to kind of understand where we are in the life cycle. And right now we're really, really early on, but like high conversion, high spending, but like a small market. Gotcha, gotcha. And so you're saying that the market size based on those metrics will stay either flat or grow at like a sub some percentage for 2022 and then 2023 we'll start to see some of the product development cycles come to fruition and people actually building stuff that like start to generate the large audiences yes it has to it, cool. so right now it's not user acquisition is going to be a big problem i think in the next couple of years like just for all the reasons you've mentioned before like axie is too expensive and so on absolutely makes sense cool cool all right well, that was it. That was our third Crypto Corner. Thank you, Sebastian, Superios, and Antubel. Uh, I loved your insights. You're a great panelist. Um, and hope to have you on some, sometime soon. Listener, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed. Uh, if you did, feel free to leave us a rating, share it with your friends. And with that, we are out, and we hope to speak to you in the next episode. Cheers. <laughs>